0: Okay, good morning everyone. We'll have to get going just a few minutes uh, behind and normally that's not a problem but we just got a tight schedule as you know. So um, uh, just regarding, actually let's pray and open this up and then I'll to give you the last one. So. Lord, we give you thanks for the day. I'm sure every one of us here last night had an amazing uh, experience being out in nature and enjoying the sun and uh, probably cleaning up around the house and gardening and different things and just remembering how you are God of order and how you create things to grow and you have a cycle of life that we that we follow and we get to experience and work alongside you and taking care of creation. So it's an exciting thing. And we uh, want to give you our time now as we think about the message this morning. As you know, we always try to make the scriptures applicable to life and um, try to bridge the gap between what happened 2,000 years ago and what is relevant for today. So I pray that your spirit would guide me and help me um, get that across uh, clear in the way you intended with Paul writing his letters. So yeah, we just uh, give you thanks. Look forward to the day. Look forward to our time. There'd be one that be one of encouragement and uh, gaining a knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I trust you also in 1 Corinthians 12. Why don't we stand and read together, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I made known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts but they are the same Spirit. There is a variety of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to whom is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of the healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to be one distinguishing of Spirit's to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills So as you can tell by the reading this morning, um, we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts as we continue our sermon series on Life Lessons from Corinth. And actually, um, this will not be a one-off, just speaking about spiritual gifts today, because of how extensive Paul writes, uh, dedicating three chapters uh, to this topic, we're going to be doing this over the next five weeks. And I thought it'd be an important conversation to have because I know many of you are fascinated by spiritual gifts, have tons of questions about them, and uh, wonder what, what does the Bible actually teach about this. And I think it's important we understand this because it polarizes churches. How we view spiritual gifts is misunderstood and polarizes churches. We have extreme sides. We have individual believers on one side that think gifts have ceased, and any sign of gift is uh, somebody's just faking something or manifesting in their own flesh. On the other side, um, we have the extreme, uh, sort of maybe charismatic uh, term that we use nowadays uh, to describe those who think everything is a free-for-all and it's basically, yeah, like one giant party. And uh, so we have this sort of uh, extremes and denominations have even come about as a result of this split. Like we have the Pentecostal movement who would tend to be on the side of sort of like the more extreme charismatic sides. And then we have uh, other churches that are more on the other. So we just sort of have like this polarization and a lot of it has to do with the subject matter. So super important. We talk about it. Um, Genesis House seeks to be a help um, always to, to dive into the word of God to solve all its issues, theological, doctrinal you know, life to life, everything. And so we're looking to meet a healthy balance. Um, we wanna find a healthy balance as to what actually the scriptures say. And probably we have a lot to say to both sides of the camp who are on both extremes. So one more point of introduction. I know that many of you will have questions when I'm done. I may, well, in fact, I guarantee I won't have time in the dialogue to answer them all. It's just the nature of the beast with their time restrictions but I'm willing to meet you uh, for coffee. Um, I'll leave you by and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go and we'll have one and we'll have a conversation about the questions. If for whatever reason there's a bunch of questions from the church and I, I accumulate maybe six or seven and I need time to answer, I'm willing to do one more sermon. Uh, and the sermon will just be answering all of your questions once I'm done preaching the whole subject matter. So whatever it takes for you to feel comfortable with understanding scripture. So let's begin by reading verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The first thing we need to discuss here is uh, this word unaware. It's actually in Greek, the word ignorant. The word ignorant. Now that's a pretty significant comment from from Paul to the Corinthians, considering what he told them in his opening letter in verses 1 through 7, or chapters 1 through 7. There he called them saints, but he said this, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the return of Jesus. So there's a dichotomy. Paul says in 1.7, you don't lack a single gift that God has to offer. But on the flip side, he says, yet you're ignorant about them. (laughs) Okay, so we have this sort of tension in Paul's uh, instruction here to, to the Corinthians. But what that tells us right away here is that in Paul's teaching, beginning in chapter 12 and ending in 14, this is not designed to be an informative session about spiritual gifts. Paul's purpose is not to teach them, you know, what they are and how to test if you have them, the typical North American sort of approach to, to spiritual gifts. This is designed as a corrective. This is a corrective. There unaware they're ignorant about the use of spiritual gifts and what they mean and why they have them. And so he has to correct their thinking. Now, what was he correcting exactly? What was the nature of their ignorance? Well, we just said it. They didn't fail to possess them. It wasn't that they were lacking. It was their abuse of them. It was their abuse of them. There was two main issues going on. First, there was something going on amongst the Corinthians where they had a ranking system for spiritual gifts. A ranking system. So, if you possessed the gifts that they ranked in the highest order, you would you would be deemed as someone of superiority in a spiritual sense, someone that God sort of uh, cared for more, favored more, and so it was a, a high priority for them to receive the quote-unquote spiritual, super spiritual gifts. If you didn't have that, you were uh, you were not elevated to a spiritual status above another. You're actually relegated to the sort of bottom deck. Now you can imagine the massive problems was created in the community of the church it led to division like crazy and not to unity secondly there were chaotic services going on disorderly services we're going to pick this up later uh, as we study but everything was those who had the superior gifts at least they thought were superior wanted to demonstrate them in the public services they wanted to demonstrate them so the people that had the maybe less recognizable gifts or like the quiet ones were going about their business, but those who had this super spirituality were declaring everything in the services and interrupting and just boistering out things and they could never get anywhere. So that was one main issue, this whole ranking of superiority of gifts. And we're gonna, this is going to be evident in chapters 12 through 14. I'm not going to get into all the verses right now. But the second one was this. They actually also failed to recognize what the spiritual gifts were for, what they were for, the Corinthians thought that the gifts were for themselves, as an elevation of status between the community and before God. Paul says he got it wrong. The gifts have nothing to do with them about being about you. They're purely for the benefit of others. And so Paul seeks to do this corrective. Now, what was the chief culprit? What were the chief? What was the chief issue, though, in terms of which gift was driving? sort of Paul to the point where he felt he had to really address this. Surprise, surprise, the use of speaking in tongues. Followed in close second by prophecy. Surprise, surprise. You know, I did a lot of study this week, and I learned a tons of stuff as to why the Corinthians may have valued these gifts the most. And it's a fun conversation to have in private as to what was going on. I don't have the time now to deal with them all. But as I began to think about this, I thought, isn't that interesting? What are the two main problems that polarizes the church today? Those Christians who speak in tongues and those people who prophesy and declare, I have a word from the Lord for you. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Hopefully already the Bible has been pulled together from 2,000 years ago into relative context for today. But what is it about those two gifts in particular that, to polarize people and why the Corinthians might think they're a spiritually elite. Well, think about this. They're visible and they're demonstrative. They're visible. You can see them being executed in a service, right? You can, because you can hear them. I should say they're auditory, maybe is the better word, they're auditory. And secondly, they're demonstrative. What I mean is this. If you're speaking in a tongue, we're going to learn this later, in the Corinthian context, it's speaking in a heavenly language, not an earthly dialect. The Corinthian, lang- well, the, the Corinthian tongues was different than the Acts tongues. The Corinthian tongues was a, a, a heavenly language. Man, what a, what a quote-unquote evidence of God touching your life and blessing you with this heavenly language that nobody else can have. And so the, it's, a, it's a badge of honor, Right. So it's, it's easy to see it. It's, it's like a, it's a, everyone knows that you couldn't speak that language apart from God doing something in your life. How about the gift of prophecy too, right? That's another one. I have a word from the Lord for you. Whereas someone like myself has never received that. Never. Ten years, actually eight years pastoring our church, the Lord has never said to me, I have a word of the Lord for you, for so and so. Never once except when I read the Bible and I, and I see the, the truths of Scripture and I have to relate them to people. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to get into prophecy later on in chapter 14 and what he really means by that. But the point of the matter is, you can see how these could be badges of honor. And so Paul now, I, actually, let me say one more thing. For these Corinthians, like it is for people today, These two gifts are like a sign of arriving at some kind of super spirituality, some extra measure of of, of connection to God. And so the chief concern in Corinth was they really cared about what it was to be a spiritual person, a spiritual person. Look at chapter 14 and verse 37. This is really important. Just quickly there, 1437. This is his conclusion in speaking about spiritual gifts. He says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So in conclusion, you think you're a spiritual person? Let me remind you of what I've just taught you as a corrective. Super important. Super important. Because what do we have in our churches like today too? We have the potential for the same issue. I'm closer to God, I'm a, I'm a super spiritual person, etc., etc. And so Paul, he's going to flip on its head what it means to be spiritual. He's going to flip the whole thinking on its head and he's going to tell them in chapters 12 to 14 what God really is looking for. But I do want to say one more thing, lest I appear like I'm trying to be super spiritual because I have it right and other churches have it wrong. <laughs> here's the key and this is going to speak to many of you in here because I know your backgrounds I've heard your stories despite the fact that Paul had called them ignorant he still called them brothers and sisters in the Lord did you catch that? look at verse 1 now concerning spiritual gifts brethren Man, what a lesson for us. What is your tendency if you have a negative attitude towards those who have abused abused spiritual gifts in the church, who have a heightened sense of super spirituality, or have abused the gifts by doing everything in service as chaotic, I bet you you've written them off and said they can't know God the way I do. If that was the case, church, you would have no letter from Paul to Corinthians. Do you understand that? Yes, it rubs me the wrong way too, and it drives me nuts, but don't write them off and say, you're not a brother and you're not a sister just because they're unaware of what God intended the gifts to be used for and what they mean.
1: Now, theologically,
0: if they're off in terms of how God accomplishes salvation and they don't declare Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and don't understand the gospel, yeah, that's a dividing issue. But not when they're immature in understanding the gifts. This might be actually one of the most important lessons you can take away today. So let's look at verse 2 and 3 and see how Paul begins the corrective. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In all of my years of pastoral ministry, these two verses have proven to probably one of the most difficult I've ever studied. I spent hours trying to figure out what in the world does Paul mean by this? For example, let no one say by the Spirit, Jesus is accursed. Can you think of any Christian services where people stand up and go, Jesus is cursed? Like, I don't, I can't think of any. And if it, if it was, why would it be happening in Corinth? You know, just things like that. Like, if this is the case, where is this happening and why is it happening? Anyway, so there's just a lot of questions. A lot of questions. So, and I read the commentaries like crazy, poured over them for hours. Not one agreed. Not one agreed. They would say, this could be what he means, but. This could be what it means, but. There was lots of circumstances, lots of things around it. So if you have um, things you think it means, then I'm happy to discuss them later. But I am going to land. I'm going to land, and I'm going to give my substantiations as to why. Here's what I things going on here. Guarantee Paul is contrasting their old way of life before they had the Spirit of God to the new way of life as as followers of Christ who now have the Spirit of God. That's an absolute slam dunking of passage. Look at this. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols however you were led. Pagans who follow after idolatry, who, who go to the temple of Aphrodite, Apollos, and worship those gods, and they're mute, they can't speak. These are mute idols, they can't speak. There is no doubt that they don't have the Spirit of God in them no doubt this is their former way of life their former way of life however he says therefore when you have the spirit you will declare that jesus is lord so he's contrasting what the what what it is like to be a, a follower of jesus in terms of having the spirit but these words are a little bit confusing in terms of no one can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit like watch this let's play a game Let's say you went to the Walmart uh, parking lot and you just interviewed a hundred people that didn't have a faith in Jesus and said, can you say Jesus is Lord? And they all said, Jesus is Lord. And say, see, Corinthians is wrong because they just said it, right? It's not, about a, it's not to be taken literally like that. So what does it mean then by no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit? We've got to think Corinthian context. We've got to think first century Roman world. To declare Jesus as Lord is to make a confession of your pure allegiance to Him as your Savior. You worship and believe in one deity. That's a confession. Now, you think about the cost. Think of the cost. What, is, what, do you, what happens to you if you have a Jewish synagogue you belong to in Corinth and you confess Jesus as Lord? What happens to you? You're excommunicated. Why? Jesus is not the Messiah. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed? In John? The Pharisees go to the parents and say, uh, was he born blind or not? They would not say for fear to be kicked out of the synagogue. That's the life of a spirit, The Jewish person's life, their family life, centered around life around the synagogue. And so to be kicked out of the synagogue is to be excommunicated from your spiritual family and your relational family and the whole thing. So Jesus is Lord to so a Jew. You don't make that declaration unless you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. How about the Gentiles? You worship many deities. You have many gods. There's lots of lords in your life. And now you step up and you say, I'm abandoning all these idols and I'm going to declare Jesus Christ is my number one. Not only that, in certain pockets of Rome, at certain decades, that was a death sentence. If you're under Nero, who declared himself to be Lord, and you called him not Lord and Jesus Lord, that could be a death sentence. And so, what Jesus, what, so this is incredible, right? This is a declaration of who you uh, trust and who you put your, your faith and hope in. So, what's Paul's point then? Here's the point. Paul's point is it's not the manifestations of the spiritual gifts that provide evidence that the Holy Spirit is present in your life. It's what you're willing to declare about Christ. Evidence of the Spirit's dwelling in your life is not what spiritual gift you have and how you declare it. It's about your willingness to basically live and die for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the content of your message that proves you're a disciple. That's how you know you have the Holy Spirit. You want a super spiritual status, a super elite status in Christian life? You confess Jesus is Lord. <laughs> You're all one and the same. You're all one and the same. Think of the brilliance in Paul's argument. He's going to break down the Corinthians who have a misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts and any superiority attached to it. And he said, who, they, they believe, you're not as close to God as me, and you're not really super spiritual. Unless you have this gift, you don't belong. And Paul says, a truly spiritual person is one who surrendered their lives to Christ and is fully allegiant to them and will confess them as Christ. That is to the Lord of the lives. That's why I love verse 13. He says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek or whether slaves or free." We are all made to drink of one spirit. Super cool. But it makes you think, church, about the future. As the, we know from the scriptures that slowly that life as a Christian is going to get harder and harder and harder. The government and the state and things are going to put the squeeze on the Christian life. Some people are going to be claiming that I have a word of the Lord for you and making themselves spiritual. What is Paul saying? As the tension comes high, as the tension grows, will you continue to confess the Lord is your Savior? The exalted one. Will the content of your message be, I will not bend to what's coming and my allegiance is to him only regardless of the cost. Super cool. As we learn from Paul. So let's look now at verse four, start reading there. As Paul continues to correct the Corinthians' misunderstanding around spiritual gifts, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. Notice Paul's Trinitarian reference there God is the same. The word same is referred to over and over. The Spirit's the same, God's the same, the Lord's the same. It's a reference to the Trinity. And if you think about the Trinity, what's unique about him is this. He is one in being, one in being, so there's unity, but he's three in persons, diversity. So there's unity in God, he's the same God, but there's diversity in how his, the roles are expressed, his personhood. Paul likens this now to understanding how to look at the spiritual gifts. He says, yes, there are a variety of gifts. There's diversity. There's a variety of effects and things like that and how they're manifested. But he says the source of all these gifts is the same. It's God himself. Again, Paul is again rooting out any thoughts of the Corinthians that believed that they had a superior gift over another or that there was one gift greater than another. Or God favors more than one another. Basically, uh, Gordon, if ordered it this way, he said, the one God who is himself characterized by diversity within unity has decreed the same for his church. So if a Corinthian says, well, uh, um, I have only the one true gift that really matters, then that was to deny the gifts that God had given the others. And God had, was the same and gave all gifts equally. So again, this is brilliant by Paul because he was saying diversity and not uniformity in gifts is essential for a healthy church. Diversity and not uniformity, which the Corinthians believed. So this was to start to correct their to correct thinking, and then he makes one huge comment here that really changed how the Corinthians viewed the gifts is in verse 7. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good the corinthian attitude was this and hopefully you can see this i hoped i could find a bigger badge than at home but i couldn't <laughs> but you see this little this badge jackson got this the alana the christian attitude was this because i can speak in tongues and because i have prophecy abilities i have a spiritual badge that you don't have does everybody see my badge Laura, you don't have this badge. Did you know that? Lisa, you don't have this badge that I have. I I am a superior Christian in this congregation because I have this badge. Their attitude is like a child in the playground with new monkey bars. Even though they didn't buy the monkey bars and they did nothing to earn it, the taxpayers paid for that, they thought it was theirs. Mine. Mine. Mind, possessive, selfish, competitive. And Paul says, do you understand that this spiritual badge should be more like a towel? More like a towel. What did Jesus do on the night of the Last Supper as a leader? Got down, washed their feet, and said, do you know what I've done to you? Very important choice of words. Do you know what I've done to you? I've taught you that as a leader or as a follower of the Lord, you serve. You serve. That's the essence of a Christian life. He's saying, these gifts are not for yourself. They're for others, they're for others. You can argue whether God gave you the gift of teaching. Maybe some days you think yes, and some days you think no. But it's irrelevant. Because if he did, it's not a badge of I wear to say teacher. The gift is given so that I can serve you for the common good. Nothing to do with me. It's for your benefit if I've been given that gift. Do you understand? It's really important you start to think about tongues that you can't understand in a heavenly language. How can that benefit someone? Paul is going to tell us that uh, as we go along in the next few weeks. So a great corrective. The gifts are to edify the church, to build up the church. They're for others and not for you. So let's look at some of them. Actually, let me say this before we start the list. There are four lists in the New Testament with spiritual gifts. Four. Corinthians is only one of them. Not one of the lists is identical. Not one. So don't think of this list here as exhaustive. Paul didn't intend it to be exhaustive. He just meant it to be representative. And do you know why I think he did this? Probably to counteract the Corinthians' overemphasis that one or two gifts in the church are most important. Probably to do that. So you think it's only tongues and prophecy? Let me explain all the gifts that God gives. Again, he stands as a corrector. Number two, um, another thing that's important is that nowhere in these lists are these gifts ever defined. He didn't, Nowhere does it say miracles means this and prophecy means this and uh, administration means this. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So therefore, all of the definitions that you will study, just like I did this week, are merely speculative based on the wisdom, like the brains we have in our head that God's given us. So I'm going to give you what I think they mean based on my study. And if you have anything else to add, I might say, that's cool. I'm glad to hear it. But both of us could never admit whether <laughs> we're right or wrong because we weren't in that church to find out. But again, this is the point. Paul, The reason why Paul doesn't define them is because that's not the issue. So when North Americans go to the list and go, I want to see which gift I have when to do a spiritual test, Paul doesn't address those things because that's not the problem in Corinth. He cares more about if you've got the wrong understanding of the gifts than more things you have the gifts. So, we have to get this right and understand what he's doing here. So, let's deal with the word of wisdom. Word of wisdom, I believe, is a supernaturally given ability to provide words of discernment or godly guidance to a specific situation or life circumstance. I think of, uh, I think of like Solomon with the baby. Remember? Two women come claiming the baby was theirs. And Solomon prayed for what? Before he became king? Or when he became king, he said, God, give me wisdom. And God says, I'm pleased of that request. Therefore, I will give you everything else on top of it. And this first demonstration of wisdom was figuring out which baby belonged to these two mothers. And he made this incredible wise decision and the people could not believe what, how, he, like, how smart this guy was. <laughs> well, again, supernatural wisdom, ability to provide words of discernment or guidance to a specific situation or circumstance. Word of knowledge. It's a supernaturally given factual information That could not otherwise be known. So God gives you a word or an understanding of of, a piece of information that you would not know otherwise. Uh, I think uh, maybe that would be Ananias and Sapphira with Peter in Acts 5. They come, and they haven't uh, been truthful about how much uh, money they got out of the land that they sold, their property. And Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied. How did Peter know that? potentially, maybe the Lord gave him a word of knowledge. Faith, this is not saving faith. Bible's clear. That's something that we exercise. (laughs) God doesn't give you faith to make you believe in him. You have faith and you exercise that. So this is not saving faith. This is a conviction that God will reveal his power or mercy in a special way in regards to a specific situation. It's the kind of person that always has the assurance that God will act and come through in some kind of way. And so they're, they're hard to um, disarm in terms of their pessimism, or optimism, I should say. They're very optimistic about, about the Lord and what he will accomplish. To be honest, I do not have that gift. <laughs> I know that for an absolute fact, even though I probably, well, should as your pastor. But uh, anyway, I just stick to the scriptures and plug along. <laughs> Healing probably speaks for itself, but in a way it didn't when I studied it it could come in sort of two different ways. It's either the ability to believe in the extraordinary work of God to bring restoration to people's ailing bodies and, don't, and you're not deterred when it doesn't always happen, or it's that you're actually given the supernatural power through God's Spirit to cure sick people. So it's either that you believe in the extraordinary power to, for God to always act in healings, and we have people out there, they, they honestly believe every time they pray for someone that's going to be healing. They, they, go, they just think that. And when it doesn't happen, they don't get deterred. Or it's actually given the supernatural ability to do so. So those are the two options. Miracles can't be healings. (laughs) It's redundant otherwise, right? It must refer then to other supernatural activities that can occur. So for example, the raising of the dead, uh, restoration of limbs to like full length, maybe the blind seeing and things like that. The healings, I think, actually refer more to like sickness, you know, like cancer and whatnot. But miracles are any extraordinary supernatural activities. Uh, Prophecy, we're going to look at this in detail in chapter 14. um, But the way I'd understand it is a supernatural uh, given message from God to a person who then relays it to the church. So it's a supernatural given message from God about what's going to happen in in the present situation or in the future and who's to be then relayed to the church. one. I studied this with you last week in Acts 11, in our last week's sermon, Agabus. He stands up as a prophet and says, by the way, Jerusalem church, there's going to be a famine. And so they started collecting money for the churches and so they were able to prepare in advance. And so I think this is what prophecy is referring to. This is distinguishing of spirits. Um, The majority of what I read believes this is in relationship to prophecy. So what Prophets can, can um, speak in two voices. A prophet, it's either a direct message from God, or it's their flesh. I mean, there's the only two options. And so this is someone who can listen to a message. Like Nicole stands up and says, I have a word from the Lord, and she speaks. And then say, Dawn has the gift of the sermon. She goes, well, actually, that wasn't from the Lord. That was from the, you know, that was from her. That'd be an awkward uh, church service. But uh, nonetheless, those are the kind of things we have to work out at Dennis' house. <laughs> <laughs> But this is, this is a gift that I think that he's referring to. I think it's directly in relationship to prophecy. It could be a distinguishing of spirits in terms of what's good and evil. Um, but again, I, I, I don't know. Like it's up, you know, you do your own research and your own work as well. Tongues, uh, it, in this context in Corinthians, it's the ability from God, a supernatural given ability to speak in a heavenly language. Acts, it was earthly languages. We're going to see in, in Corinthians, it's going to be a, primarily like a, a heavenly language. And the interpretation of tongues? Ability to translate the heavenly language into the human language so the church can understand it. All right, let's finish with this. How do you receive the gifts? How do you receive them? Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Do you see that, church? Notice it, they're distributed as he wills. It's the Holy Spirit that decides who gets the gifts, not you. It doesn't matter how educated you are. You can't study your way into getting the gifts. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. You can be a believer for two days and get something that someone after 30 years has not received. It doesn't matter if you practice the gifts. What do you mean by this? I'm not making this up. I listened to a guy named uh, Mike Winger speaking to a girl who has a podcast named Felicia Masonheimer. Shout out, Laura. And um, he spoke about, he studied Bill Johnson's theology at Bethel Church in Redding, California extensively, like put hours and hours of work. And he's, he's, he, I learned this from him that he uncovered that at Bethel Church, like, um, Two people, they'll line up in lines. So maybe like me and Cheryl are close to one another and say, Don, these are close to one another. We're in lines. And they say, now everyone practice prophecy. And so I give you a word and you give me a word and we're supposed to basically uh, work. And that's how we sort of do the gifts according to what Paul's teaching here. Now, here's the thing. (laughs) That can go wrong super fast. (laughs) It makes people like me get my shorts in the mouth, Right? There is a theological language for you. Maybe I should go back to seminary and learn better grammar. But uh, anyway. um, (laughs) But here's the thing. When they get it wrong, the, the comment Mike said from his research was this. They say, well, you know what? I know you got it wrong, but good for you. At least you tried. You're moving in the right direction. What does Paul say? You're moving in the wrong direction, not the right direction. Again. But here's what's key. Here's another two attributes that I think are super important based on the Corinthian context. Receiving the gifts then has nothing to do with maturity or your knowledge of the gift. Why do I bring this up? Corinthians were the most immature church in the the New Testament. They're described in chapter 3, verse 1 as babes in Christ. You're babes in Christ. You have divisions, lawsuits, immorality. You're, you're, you're baby in some of these things. But they still were gifted because God decides. Number two, knowledge. He just called them ignorant and unaware. <laughs> you wouldn't have to spend three chapters in speaking on these issues if they knew how to use them and what they were for. Now, why do I bring this up? I want to show you, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just trying to help get the healthy balance here. This comes from the Assemblies of God Pentecostal Movement. In their website, uh, they have a newsletter they produce, and I read their newsletter. It says this, as humans, do we play a role as to whether or not tongues and other gifts will operate in the church? He says the believer must have a clear understanding of the biblical basis for promised gifts. Really? The Corinthians were ignorant. Number two, be touched in his heart with a desire for the gifts to flow. This is key. The key is obedient, availability, coupled with a sincere desire to please God. I don't even know what number two means. Regardless, though, Paul's saying it's God who decides, who receives the gifts. You can't do anything in your human influence to to make it come to you or happen. Although, I will give one caveat. One caveat. In Corinth, Paul says this in 14.1. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire them. So, maybe the reason why people don't possess them is because they don't desire them. And so we haven't come to God in prayer and say, Lord, whatever you want to provide for me, I would be willing to take. If that means nothing, I'm okay with that. But if you're willing to give me something, then, then, then I'll be the better. I'll use them for your glory in the corporate church setting and to help out my fellow man, my fellow believer. So this is super important, church. So the spiritual gifts are not the measure of Christian maturity then. What is? We're going to find this out in chapter 13. Love. Love and are willing to confess Jesus as Lord. All right. Number one, followers of Jesus can have all the biblical spiritual gifts in operation in their church services and yet still be defined as ignorant in relation to them. They can have all the spiritual gifts in operation and be unaware in relation to what the gifts mean in two ways. A, they're not a sign of superiority. In any way, and number two, you have to understand who they're for. They're for the body. They're not for you. They don't make you super spiritual, in any sense of the word. Number two, ignorant believers though are still believers, right? I want you to be una- don't want you to be unaware, brethren. I mean it's a really important lesson for someone like me who, who has the tendency to write off like really, really charismatic, abusive side of things. But ignorant believers are still called believers. Paul makes that clear. When you get to glory, that person will be standing arm in arm beside you, singing praises to God. And yet you'll have a, it ripped them off on this earth. Something to think about. Lesson three. Although we're to seek after spiritual gifts, it's still up to God in terms of who receives them. So 14.1, seek the gifts. However, God determines them in verse 11. And I should say here, again, I've already said it multiple times, but you can't study the subject matter more to get them. You can't practice more. It's not a sign that, you know, you, you don't have to get sport, more spiritually mature. In your faith or know the word of God better to receive them, it's just fully up to the Lord and asking Him for them. For God gives His followers spiritual gifts for the common good of the church body, not to showcase an individual. He gives you the gifts as a towel, not a badge. And finally, real evidence of the Spirit's presence in a believer's life is not the manifestation of the spiritual gifts. But in their willingness to proclaim Christ as Lord, that's verse. That's verse three. That's verse three. Amen. Let's have a time of conversation.